Hello and welcome back to There Will Be Spoilers, 100 Films, 100 Podcasts. My name is Matt Bazell. And I am Ethan Knight. And we're back with number 30 on AFI's Top 100 List of Films, 1979's Apocalypse Now. Apocalypse Later. <laughs> Apocalypse maybe next week, I guess. Apocalypse in the near future. Apocalypse question mark? Ethan, have you seen this film before? No, I had not seen this film before. Neither had I. Though, as I mentioned, I believe the last episode here on the AFI Top 100, I've read Heart of Darkness pretty recently. Mm-hmm. And you know what? I think uh, there might be some similarities. Yeah, I have not read Heart of Darkness, so this is uh, new for me. Well, maybe I'll talk a little bit about that, but first, I feel like we need a plot synopsis. Yes, we do need one. Apocalypse Now is the story of Benjamin Willard, a soldier tasked with assassinating Colonel Walter Kurtz. Kurtz, a trained special forces operative, has gone missing in the jungles of Cambodia during the Vietnam conflict after disobeying orders. He's presumed insane and is worshipped by a cult of soldiers, American and otherwise, uh, as a god. Willard accepts his mission and is sent upriver on a patrol boat to find Kurtz. He is joined by Chief, Lance, Chef, and Mr. Clean, soldiers who operate the patrol boat. They meet up with Kilgore, a cavalry commander and surfing enthusiast, who transports them to the correct river, partially because he is enamored with Lance, who himself is a famous surfer. Along the way upriver, the group runs into a USO show that descends into violence, a bridge battle with seemingly no commander, and eventually native people who kill Mr. Clean and Chief. Lance becomes increasingly unstable, and uh, Chef eventually refuses to leave Willard alone on his journey into Cambodia, but decides to help him complete the mission. Finally, in Cambodia, the remaining men meet Kurtz's cult, who is camped in a set of ruins. Bodies and gore litter the area, and the men are greeted by an American photojournalist who worships Kurtz as well. Lance joins the cult almost immediately, while Chef remains on the boat with instructions to call an airstrike if Willard does not return in time. Willard is taken captive, and Chef is eventually beheaded by Kurtz to the horror of Willard. Finally, during a frenzied ritual sacrifice, Willard confronts and kills Kurtz. As he emerges from the ruins, the cult bows to him. He takes Lance and a collection of writings by Kurtz and leaves as the film fades to black. A couple of things I think are, are worth mentioning. The cult of Kurtz, I guess we can call it. Mm-hmm. They are comprised of, it seemed like, mostly Montegard natives. Yes. Which is what we get from Harrison Ford's character. Let's us know yes. that earlier in the film, which is a small role for Ford in that case. We don't really see him after that, but that's... And they're, they're up there and they're killing pretty much everybody is what he's saying. And there's like, what, two Americans part of it as well? Yeah. There's that Colby character that after the halfway point of the film we get to know that he has also become a disciple of Kurt's. Right, and his mission was the same as Willard's. Yeah. You know, thereby hinting at the possible, I don't know, backsliding that Willard might do once mm -hmm. in the presence of Kurt's. Kurt's is sort of like moral and 
ambiguous infection that he does. Mm-hmm. But Mr. Clean, played by Lawrence Fishburne, mm-hmm. is killed by either Cambodian soldiers or NVA. Right, yes. He's actually shot to death. So it's not the natives that kill him. The natives kill Chief with... Oh, they have a bunch you're of right. Little... I, yeah, I conflated those two scenes. Because they happen pretty quickly. They do. The other. I mean, this is sort of like... Not a big turn necessarily of the film, but we really start to see... It's like the watershed of death, right? That's where we start seeing yeah. people get picked off. Once Lawrence Fishburne's character dies, it starts to go really downhill. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that scene in which Chief is killed by the spear is mm. lifted almost entirely whole cloth from Heart of Darkness. From Heart they're, of Darkness. Yeah, they're going through the fog. And then I think Chef even says, hey, why aren't they attacking? I think that's a line in the book. And then it mm-hmm. clears, and then they see the natives, and they're shooting with arrows. And they're little toy arrows in this case. They don't do anything to them. But it's that spear that they get hit by, that Chief gets hit by, that kills them. Yeah. And that scene, I think, is almost direct, right? He dies at the feet of Marlowe, which is our Willard in, in this film. And then it's like, I think his boots get filled up with blood because of the dead man. And so you get that like close proximity of that death and they do throw him overboard afterwards. So mm-hmm. that's just one similarity, but the film has a lot more. Of course, the final words of the book are the horror, the horror. Mm-hmm. And the final words of the film are the horror, the horror. Yes. Kurt's being echoed in Willard's head, presumably. So there's a, there's a lot of connection. Uh, I think it's, yeah. I think it's safe to say. Um, the photojournalist that we see played by dennis hopper Mm -hmm. he is the analog for this like russian character who dresses in patchwork which the photographer very closely resembles Mm. he's the one who tells us that kurtz's soul is mad another theme from the book so we've got the madness of kurtz and the horror and kurtz actually has this longer what would you call it meditation perhaps on horror toward Mm -hmm. the end of the film. And I think that's what I I'm going to go with for our, our pivotal scene because we're called back to it a few times with the idea of horror. And we've been confronted with a lot of horror in sort of the episodic nature of the film before this point, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of strange how the film strange and maybe not, not a bad way, but the way it's put together, because you have this, upriver episode 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 right different things happening mm-hmm. which are certainly all thematically resonant with with each other and then we have willard's captivity which is feels like this entirely different film in some ways yeah but it's that scene when curse which i guess we didn't mention is played by marlon brando marlon brando yes a, a much older marlon brando not from streetcar named desire right type. old brando old brando and we've got Martin Sheen, of course, as Willard. Yes. But he's he's telling Willard about the horror, the horror as it can be an ally or an enemy. Mm-hmm. And he goes into this long story about when he was in special forces and they were trying to inoculate children from polio and the soldiers just in the arms, yeah. Yeah, just hacked the arms, there's this pile of arms. So that's that's what I want us to listen to, and then we'll come back and talk about it. Horror has a face and you must make a friend of horror horror and moral terror are your friends if they are not 
then they are enemies to be feared. They are truly enemies. I remember when I was with special forces, seems a thousand centuries ago. We went into a camp to inoculate. Some children. We left the camp after we had inoculated the children for polio. And this old man came running after us and he was crying, he couldn't say. We went back there and they had come and hacked off every inoculated arm. There they were in a pile, a pile of little arms. And I remember, I, I, I cried, I wept like some grandmother. I wanted to tear my teeth out. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I want to remember it. I never want to forget it. I never want to forget. And then I realized, like I was shot, like I was shot with a diamond, a diamond bullet right through my forehead. And I thought, my God, the genius of that, the genius, the will to do that. Perfect, genuine, complete, crystalline, pure. And then I realized they were stronger than we because they could stand it. These were not monsters. These were men, trained cadres, these men who fought with their hearts, who have families, who have children, who are filled with love, but they have the strength, the strength to do that. If I had 10 divisions of those men, then our troubles here would be over very quickly. So the reason I picked this is because it actually harkens back to something that happened immediately in the film right one of the first scenes is martin sheen lying there in bed seeing explosions in his mind mm -hmm. and then he's kind of going crazy right in his hotel room and he's squatting there and he says every day i'm here i get softer while charlie gets stronger yeah squatting in the bush squatting in the jungle eating cold rice all that stuff right that is picked up again in kurtz's idea of the horror and how the horror the, you know, confronting it, having the strength to see the horror as not like a debilitating thing, but as as like a as like part of your own strength or own advantage, mm -hmm. the ability to cut all these children's arms off, which feels like Kurtz is reading the wrong message there. But yeah. we certainly see, <laughs> and I mean, you hear it in the scene we we just listened to how crazy he sounds, right? Yeah. Talking about diamond bullets going through his forehead, this crystalline idea about that strength. And if we just had 10 divisions of men like that, we can kill 
this whole right. thing. Well, and whenever you get a character that starts talking about purity in a, in a film, sure. that isn't that isn't a uh, you know a sort of comedy. We, we you can tell pretty pretty straight off the bat that they're they've they've lost it. They've gone off the deep end. Yeah, and, and I think it's pretty easy. The performance by Brando here is obviously very good, in which you think, oh yeah, this dude's insane, but he's not very different from Willard. No, he's not. That that's that's what is so interesting is when we get into that last portion of the film is that there the parallel here is really obvious, mm-hmm. really obvious. The shots even even show the two men in in similar ways. The way their faces are are highlighted uh, or not. Right. Um, of course, what's really interesting is that Brando was too fucking fat to play the role he showed up like way overweight and like super unprepared and so all those shot these beautiful shots of his of just his face um Mm -hmm. are are actually um dealing with the fact that he was too overweight to play the role but at that point they had already gone way over budget and time um and and it ends up being sort of a constraint that helps the story right and really helps to underline the similarity between him and Willard because of course the film begins with these these sort of weird close-ups of of Willard's face right so there's Mm -hmm. all this there there is this parallel set up for us um that interestingly comes from a, a constraint of the production yeah I certainly noticed that you know visually speaking how we have their face equal parts light and shadow that's done a lot first when we meet Kurtz and then when yeah. Willard kills him and walks out, that's also reflected there as well. So you get those visual connections. And of course, the thematic connection is also there. So mm-hmm. what do you think this means, Ethan? Why do you think we are forced to confront Willard as Kurtz and Kurtz as Willard in this film? Well, I mean, I, I mean, I really think that at the end of the day, Willard's journey up the river is is the sort of journey that that transforms you into a character like Kurtz, right? Or it doesn't. I mean, I, I think that's maybe the central conflict as we're making our way up the river. Like more and more, uh, and the more we hear of Kurtz's uh, writing and things like that, that uh, or, or the things about him in the file that Willard is dealing with, I, I think in so many ways, right, we're seeing Willard's descent as well. And, and I think the ending leaves us with a question, right? Does, does he, does he become Kurtz in some way? Um, and I, my, my reading is to say, no, he, he escapes, right? And, and we do see the boat leave. Um, but I think that like he, he is confronted when he gets there with Kurtz with this sort of, you know, dark mirror version of himself right like he can see what he could become if with with just a little bit more of a push um and i think he does seem to resist it at the end he seems to say no right which is why he takes lance which is why he drops the weapon which is why he leaves well i have a question yeah but i have a question about that yeah you can take your madness with you right i mean the idea that willard is already having problems in the hotel room before right. his descent right what we call his descent but he would go home and want to be back in the jungle and why he's in the jungle he wants to be home and it seems like he can't really find a place anywhere we do get something at the very beginning when he's doing his opening narration that 
once I took this mission and finished it, I would never want another one. Yeah. But we don't know if that means that he's gotten past it, right? I think there's something about Willard's prior instability, right? His particular symptoms or the way he's being affected by the trauma of his experience. I really think it leaves a standing question for yeah. what what happens from there. I mean, I think that he does seem to reject... I I think that a lot of that that sort of his his desires in that monologue that we get at the start of the film, I think that by the end of the film, I I get the sense that maybe he's realized that this is sort of folly, right? That he that he does. I mean, you as you pointed out, you can take your madness with you, um, but I think he doesn't take the kind of. I think I think that he has confronted the madness that he thinks that he is is grappling with at the start of the film he does that in kurtz and i think that he does i mean he even has the chance we see him in the boat before attacking kurtz he has the opportunity to leave to call an airstrike to to end it all and and he confronts it i think and destroys that part of himself which isn't to say that he leaves empty-handed he leaves with nothing he or that he doesn't leave with some sort of residual madness but i think that in it is about the confrontation um it is about the that 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 frenzied awful scene at the end with the water buffalo cut you know where they're sacrificing the water buffalo cut with the the fight between him between him and kurtz that that you know he he doesn't take part in that ritual sacrifice right that we see with with all of these people in instead he takes uh he he grapples with a single person right witnessed for some strange reason by that by that uh young woman but at the same time willard is still participating in ritual sacrifice right kurtz Mm -hmm. has become the scapegoat for all of the insanity or madness of the war in general right it's just all been localized and so willard is still carrying out the orders of the people who have created the conditions of the chaos the madness right he's so you're right in that in that aspect he is still he is still a part of it he's just part of something much bigger right rather than something very local yeah and though i tend to agree with your reading that Willard goes into the heart of darkness, confronts Kurtz and the darker side of himself, and I think ultimately not transcends it, but perhaps struggles past it is maybe the way to say it. I mean, because we see other parallels as well, where they're checking that boat, you know, pretty early on in the film, one of the episodes mm-hmm. basically up the river, and Mr. Clean just goes off and shoots everybody, yeah. and one of the women is still alive. And Chief says, well, you know, we need to take her to basically to get her medical attention. And Willard says, no, we're not doing that and just shoots her. shoots her, yeah. Which I take, that's I think almost at the exact midpoint of the film. Mm -hmm. And there's that long transition between just like three or four seconds of complete darkness before you open back up on the next part of the film. Yeah. And I think that's really supposed to hammer home that, you know, Willard is on a precipice. Right. He can yeah. be Kurtz. Well, I think that in that last moment there, right, where he where he emerges, there's that shot where he emerges from the door of the of the ruin where um, Kurtz has been holed up and he has in his hand the writing and the and the machete. 
And there is a moment where, you know, everybody bows down to him and he drops the, the machete, right? Which to me signals a sort of rejection uh, of all of it, of, of Kurtz, of the, of the, you know, the military and the government um, and that whole thing. So I think there, at least for me, there is at some point this rejection, right? Which is, I mean, you can, you can nominally reject something without having to you know, actually, truly reject it. But I think that there is an attempt by him at that point to say, I, I, this, ha, I, this, is, this has to stop. Or at least my participation in it has to stop, right? Yeah, I agree with that as well. But, you know, it comes at the cost of, he's already completed the mission that was right. given to him. So that could be a realization. Yeah. Sure. But at the same time, he still, he still contributed to that cycle. Yeah, he has. And so I, I think it's supposed to be ambiguous right i think it's supposed to be a question that's not answered just like the incredibly complex and difficult book heart of darkness right Right. (laughs) i think this film does a really good job at capturing that and saying look there are not easy answers here and you can still triumph or struggle past or get through your own demons or some demons or your demons made manifest or personified in another person but you can still be ultimately contributing to the problem that creates these people that created you. And that, I think that's really strong because it doesn't try to give a pat or easy answer to a large question like that. Yeah, I think you're right. So Ethan, why don't we turn to our three questions? Let's do it. But before we do, let's talk about anchor. All right. Okay. So do we care about this film? Um, well, I have to unequivocally say yes. I think that this, we've seen several Vietnam films in this list. Um, and, you know, just in our lives have encountered a lot, you know, Vietnam is a, a sort of cultural touchstone. It is something that so much has been said and written and thought and made about. Um, and I, and honestly, having watched this film, I think that for me, this is the quintessential Vietnam film. This mm-hmm. it, it, it truly is. It captures on so many levels the excitement, but that excitement is always undercut by like this dark, dark, dark sense of of deep violence and deep like there there's there's all sorts of um, mental gymnastics you have to do to sort of see like the cavalry characters um, that that fly in on the helicopters. There is something that is like. The, 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 it's almost out of a, like a Star Wars film. There, there's mm-hmm. an, an adventure sense to it, right? There's this excitement, um, especially in the first portion of the film, the first half. Th- there is this excitement, but that excitement is always really undercut by like a deep sense of like people are are dying, and and this is all senseless, right? This is all you know. You you have a mission. It's not it's not for the greater good of the world. It's not for for country, right? It's it's because you've been told to do it. Um, or because you enjoy the violence, right? These Some of these characters seem to simply enjoy the violence. And so this, to me, really does capture my understanding of Vietnam and the fact that it has a linear trajectory, right? That you get deeper and deeper into madness and insanity. Um, mm-hmm. and, the, and the visual aspects of the film reflect this, right? The farther they go up the river, the more bizarre and strange and, and I don't know... Uh, surreal the the surroundings get the set pieces get uh and so i i think that this film does encapsulate in so many ways the the experience of vietnam you know not that i know i don't know but (laughs) you know what i mean 
Yeah, I want to pick up on that senselessness again you were speaking to. Also with those AirCav characters, they they care more about surfing and they're doing this whole right. thing to get a good surfing spot. And it just adds to the insanity, right? I think insanity and madness, although we're applying these terms slightly differently than, you know, like a literal madness. Yeah, I think yeah, yeah. this is absolutely the core of this film and why I think I do care about it. Just because it's in so many ways stunning and it's very thematically resonant. All these scenes, though we mentioned they feel episodic in the first half, or at least the first three quarters, they're all cumulative, right? They add up, and I think it really hammers its message home, and you leave the film thinking, you know, what do I do with this, right? I think you're left with that ambiguity, that ambivalence, and I think that's an important thing to have, and it's something that really contributes to not only the mystique of the film, but its importance. Ethan... Man. What do we owe to this film? I think that there, there, there is so much Vietnam imagery that this film does so well, and it's hard to tell if, if or how much of this is influenced by some of the other Vietnam films we've seen on the list. But it, it just, I mean, these helicopters coming in with with the the Wagner and. Um, this moment with uh, Martin Sheen coming out of the water, I mean, I think there's just a lot of sort of military film and Vietnam film and sort of jungle military film iconography that comes out of this that is that is pretty undeniable. You know, it's interesting you say that because the Vietnam films that we've seen, right, thinking Platoon, Platoon the most. And, uh, yeah. Platoon comes out five years after this after. film, right? Mm. And of course, the choice of having Charlie Sheen, in, you know, in the as the main character in that film, as opposed right. to Martin Sheen, you know, I think that's telling, right? I think that, mm-hmm. if nothing else, at least a little bit of a nod, or trying to recapture some of the magic that is this film. But yeah, you know, I think something like Full Metal Jacket takes a lot of cues mm-hmm. from this. Again, a later film, but. I think we see most of our Vietnam War tropes or themes established here. I mean, I'm trying to think what even came before this in terms of, you know, famous Vietnam War films. Well, I mean, obviously we have newsreels and stuff that would have come, you know, so I think perhaps there is something that is just, uh, you know, derivative of, of that here, perhaps. Sure, but I mean, in terms of it's like, the fictionalization yeah. of Vietnam to make Vietnam a story, to make it a plot, a setting, a place sure. for film. I think, I think we're getting that primarily from this one. Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, even too, we've got these shots of Marlon Brando at the end of his face and his tilting head as he's, as he's, uh, you know, sort of giving his almost James Bondian villain speech um, that his sort of mannerisms in that scene seem so, uh, they, they seem like, they seem like things I've seen a thousand times. Right. So I think mm-hmm. that there's even some derivativeness that comes out of that, like that people have seen this performance and you have a, the sort of mad villain. Um, and, and I think that that gets imitated as well. 
So there, there's just, I mean, it, I think there's so much that visually gets ripped from this film, imitated, uh, you know, re, retold, that sort of thing, um, as, as a sort of shorthand for war. You know, it's interesting you say that because I do agree in a lot of ways. I think when you look at something like Saving Private Ryan, even mm-hmm. to call back to another war film on the list, mm-hmm. we see some elements of the senselessness of war in that film there as well. And this is not to say that this film has coined the senselessness of war, but I think it's right particular enunciation. I think we get hints of that in Saving Private Ryan. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's funny to me that we really haven't gotten a whole lot in, by the way of like Iraq and Afghanistan. Like we don't really yeah. see the same kind of films. Maybe we just have a different aesthetic or a different mentality when it comes to that conflict or those conflicts as opposed to Vietnam. But I was sitting there watching thinking, I want to see the apocalypse now of Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, right. Well, and I wonder if there is something to be said about the fact that we have not had the apocalypse now version uh, of that war, or at least in, in one that we can call easily to mind. Well, I mean, we have War Machine, right, which we talked about in a bonus yes. episode, but that's, but a, that's different a kind different. of senselessness, yeah. I think. And I think that um, I think that perhaps there is a sense of patriotism that is still really fresh and really intertwined in the Iraq Afghanistan uh, set of conflicts that we that we don't have for for Vietnam, right? Vietnam feels very much, and obviously you, neither of us lived through it, um, but feels very much like that that sort of sense of patriotism that that is that is particularly um you know right wing uh doesn't seem to be present at least not anymore nobody's looking back at the vietnam war and thinking about how like you know that there's not much good to be said about it right whereas there there are still i feel like people or at least a sense that goes along with iraq and afghanistan that uh, of patriotism of we were we were trying to do something to make the world better you know there's a strain of thinking that's like that but you have to keep in mind that this film was only four years after america left vietnam true so that i feel itself is very striking and and it makes me wonder why more people haven't taken the notes from apocalypse now for their war films and maybe that's just a ability thing like maybe the vision of this film is just so totalizing complete and maybe it's just an agony to do mm-hmm. and replicating this is something very difficult to do but i like to see more of it right so i definitely think though we see how it has influenced a lot of war films see how it has influenced uh sort of the ic- iconic things iconic scenes that we've we've seen throughout um you know whether it's just simple parody or satire or deliberate right i feel like mm-hmm. you could even look at like the predator in Schwarzenegger yeah. rising from the mud and it's like a very mm-hmm. similar thing. So there's that kind of shorthand you were mentioning, yeah. but I think it's striking the absence of this film from more um, directors or filmmakers language. I wonder too, if at the end of the day, the difference between something like these, these Vietnam films and, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan sort of things is that Iraq, Afghanistan at the end of the day are tied back in some way to 9-11 to 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 that kind of tragedy and so there there isn't that same sort of inciting incident for 
the Vietnam War. There, we weren't attacked and then and then re- responding in kind or in in some sort of way. Um, it, it's its own diff, it's its own very different thing. So perhaps that that is some uh, the beginning of the answer to that question that you asked. Yeah, I, it's hard to say, right? Because we didn't live in that era, mm-hmm. and who could maybe like the Gulf of Tonkin incident is something mm-hmm. that people point to as a 9-11 ish thing but yeah in any case we should probably move on to our next question will this film hold up yeah and you know i think i think that it it, i think that it does and it continues to you know i i think that it is it is so i don't know what's the word i want Uh, it's grip this is a gripping film this Mm -hmm. is a this is a hard film to watch um but it, at least throughout most of it, it balances. Like I said, there's that there's that weird balance of like there is some exciting action movie shit in it that that sort of tides you over when it becomes too heavy um, until we get to the end, and then it becomes this very Faulknerian like heavy weight that that sits on your shoulders. But, but the experience of it is 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 captivating. You know, it's interesting you say that because. I did not find this film hard to watch at all. Maybe I just made a friend of the horror like Kurtz advised me to do. Uh, maybe. But not to say that I look inured to the scenes here. I think it's just, it is it is very gripping. And I only had to stop the movie once because I had a phone call and that was it. Right, like I was locked in, going to watch this two and a half hour movie all the way through, no problem. And I think on top of that, there are such suspenseful scenes even. Yes, right? I think that that bridge sequence at, at night when they go to this like basically crazy town bridge. Yeah. That was so bizarre that I just wanted to know, you know, what's going to happen next. Who is this guy? Oh, he's got a grenade launcher. You know, it's just like a very yeah. crazy thing that just propels you through the film. And I think visually this film is absolutely stunning. Oh, w- without a doubt. There, there's the shot um, where uh, Willard is being g- captured by the, the cult and the the camera rolls mm-hmm. with him and it keep and it does it you think you know i i was like oh my god they're gonna roll it once and then it kept rolling and i was like oh i mean there there are there's shot after shot like that that i mean the, the obviously the iconic helicopters flying in with the, sure. with the wagner um but you know just, just so many there are so many moments where it is it is a, it is a feast for your eyes and i think that you know the things like you were talking about this sort of bridge, that insane bridge scene, you know, that for me also helps propel me through the film. But at that point I was like this, my shoulders were starting to hurt at that point from all the tension that it just, it, you know, it, it, and it doesn't ever resolve any of the tension. Really. It just builds. And then you get a little release and then it builds and builds and builds. And then you get a little release and it builds and builds. And then the film ends, you know? And I think that's perhaps why it felt so like, I mean, I poured myself a glass of whiskey after this film because I was like, I just sat for two and a half hours and what, I mean, it just is, it is just so, I don't know. There's just so much going on and so much sound and I, I, it's just wild. Yeah. And I think, you know, speaking for myself, having just recently finished the film before we started recording, I think that's why like my own tone is more subdued today than perhaps usual because it is such a weighty, heavy film. It is. And it takes a lot of unpacking, and I think that's going to be a long-term process, right? We, we talk about this a lot on the podcast, how, you know, how well do you think about the movie right after seeing it, and typically when we are recording, but then what does it look like a month from now, two months from now? And I think the rundowns help 
recapture some of that a little bit, but but definitely, you know, there's no way for you to kind of chart the the continuing influence of the film unless it kind of reminds itself in other episodes or other films, which, you know, just thinking ahead here, I'm I'm probably going to reference this film a lot in the future just because yeah. I think it is so impactful. So I think yeah, absolutely this will continue to hold up and I think it's incredible what it does with lighting and it's such a dark film most of the time like visually dark yeah they offset it with these flares and lights and i i think that this is a film for me that i don't know that i will be able to physically return to it and rewatch it for a long time i think i need a long time before i can revisit it again if if at all but it is one of those films that i think is not it's not going to leave uh my my brain for a very long time as well there, there's it, there's a lot to, like you said there's a lot to unpack and and it is it's an assault in a lot of ways to your senses um especially you know on a, on a larger screen and with a lot of volume it is an assault and on that note maybe we should um though the <laughs> though, though the film is not going to necessarily leave our minds we the host of this podcast can leave your ears so yes we're going to be back next week with a bonus episode as usual in addition to another round of the rundown it's been 70 films oh my god the next film we return to i actually don't know what it is ethan can you help me out matt the next film is double indemnity 1944 1944's double indemnity which would be number 29 on the list number 29 well then we'll anxiously await that film in two weeks but until next time, I've been Matt Bazell. And I'm Ethan Knight. And there will be spoilers. I love the smell of spoilers in the morning. There Will Be Spoilers 100 Films 100 Podcasts was created and hosted by Matt Bazell and me, Ethan Knight. Matt Bazell produces our episodes each week. Our music was created by the strange and unusual Breakmaster Cylinder, who you can find all over the internet. Our artwork was created by Becca Knight, who can be found on Twitter at Becca the Knight, and that's Knight with a K. You can follow There Will Be Spoilers on Twitter at SpoilersCast, and you can hear more episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like our podcast, you can support us on Patreon for $5 a month at patreon.com slash spoilerscast. Your donation gives you access to two extra bonus episodes a month. Thank you for listening, and please tune in next week for more spoilers.